we're losing a generation, you know, 300 and some people. And it's like, no one cares. I don't understand why it's not an emergency. Can you hear the frustration in her voice? Lori Badura has spent the last decade on a relentless mission to curb the rising death toll from fentanyl. Despite her tireless efforts, the death rate continues to surge dramatically. Lori's journey into advocacy began in 2014, fueled by the heartbreaking loss of her son, Archie. They were trying to self-medicate. They just wanted to feel good. These kids, there's nothing bad about them. What they were trying to do is feel good and fit in. In addition to raising awareness about the drug crisis, Lori also wanted to help others who are grieving. She became a certified bereavement companion. And in today's episode of Grieving Out Loud, she shares practical ways for healthy grieving that can allow you to grow stronger and thrive despite a devastating loss. I'm Angela Kennecke, and welcome to Grieving Out Loud. Thank you so much for joining us. We hope you find this episode helpful in understanding substance use disorder, our nation's fentanyl crisis, and how despite difficult losses in life, you can find hope, meaning, and healing for yourself and others. Lori, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. You and I were both at the White House for International Overdose Awareness Day, but we didn't really get a chance to connect because there wasn't enough time to connect with all the parents there. Right. So nice to meet you, too. And I'm sorry that this is how we have to meet because of your beautiful daughter, my son, Archie. It's sad. It is sad. And I always say that to parents that I meet along the way here. I'm so glad to know you, but I'm so sorry for the circumstances under which we're meeting. Exactly. And your son's story, I think, is so interesting because you lost Archie in 2014, four years before my daughter died. And when my daughter died in 2018, we were just starting to kind of talk about fentanyl. Do you know what I mean? Like it wasn't really in the public awareness or the public consciousness yet. Exactly. You know, you went to a Catholic grade school. We had no problems. Very honest kid. <laughs> when he got to high school, and it was public high school, he was so honest. He came home from football practice and said, Mom, I found the best medicine for my ADHD. And he said, it's called Mary Jane. And I said, oh, you know, I knew right away what he was talking about was marijuana. Well, so really in high school, his battle really was over marijuana. And a lot of parents at that time thought I was kind of being ridiculous about, you know, that. There was nothing with heart drugs. It was marijuana. And he really thought it was okay because society, he said, there's so many states that think it's legal and it's supposed to help with anxiety and relaxing. And he didn't understand why I was so nervous for a kid like him who had addictive personality. I was very nervous, you know, about something like that. So I said, hey, when you're older, if that's something you want to do and you want to move to a state that that's legalized, fine. But when you're living under our roof, we have a no drug policy. And so that's kind of how it started. Yeah, with Emily, too, it started with marijuana in high school. And she just, I thought, and I've talked to so many people who eventually became 
addicted to opioids who say it started for them with marijuana at a young age. And for people who say it's not a gateway drug, I would say it's not for the developing brain. And studies have shown that when kids start smoking marijuana before their brain is fully developed, they set themselves up for addiction. Completely. And what it does, it kind of, what I've seen, it really morphed his feelings. And I'm sure your daughters too. They were trying to self-medicate. They just wanted to feel good. I mean, these kids, there's nothing bad about them. What they were trying to do is feel good and fit in. And like I said, he was honest with me, very honest with me. But then it just became, like anything else, more of an addiction. And for him, I didn't like when, if he was using a marijuana, I really think marijuana is scary because afterwards they can become very mean and using the words that, you know, it's just not a good thing. So people think it's such an easy, calm. It was not good those four years in high school. So we did a lot of different treatment programs just for that. And never in a million years would I've ever thought he would be snorting a substance. Despite grappling with substance use disorder, Archie graduated from high school in 2013 and planned to attend a tech school for welding. He's really excited about it. And he decided right before he was going to go to school, it's not for me. I think I'm just going to wait a semester, you know, do something else. And my husband and my younger son, Augie, and I, we all looked at each other and we kind of were like, uh-oh, this isn't good. And I'm telling you, within within that time frame of that fall, and we lost him that May, he had met a woman that was a few years older than him that had back pain, and she had opioids. And I had no clue. You know, she was living on her own, and they were snorting the opioids. Lori had no clue that her son was abusing drugs until he overdosed. To say she was shocked, well, that's just an understatement. Luckily, Archie survived and decided to seek help. And he went into our rehab center, and I was so scared. I really thought, I can't lose him. I cannot. I can't. You almost died. And, you know, he was revived. The paramedics revived both of them. They found both of them down, and it wasn't fentanyl at that time. It was just an overdose, a plain and simple overdose. Following rehab, Lori was optimistic her son had overcome the strong grip of opioids. He went more than two months without taking drugs and seemed to be happy and healthy. Living with our family, living great, had done so, so well. And it was, again with a girlfriend and the substance was laced with fentanyl. After Archie unknowingly consumed fentanyl, Lori says her husband tried to save their oldest son's life. It's, you know, because he tried to resuscitate him and he said it, it was just too much and he's still suffering. And that weekend, it was something that no, nobody in our state or our town even knew the word fentanyl. None of us did. It was just, it was devastating. It was absolutely devastating. What drug did he think he was using? They were snorting what they thought, I want to say like a cocaine heroin that they bought on the street. They called smack or something. I'm not really sure. 
it was something like lines because they were taking the pills that she had and crushing them, but they weren't shooting or anything. But I, I just, I couldn't believe that that is how I lost my son. And all of a sudden it just seemed like the world, you know, I, I thought I, I would die just like any other parent that has gone through this. And for me, and maybe that's how it is for you, I had to do something. And that's exactly what Lori has been doing. A decade ago, after Archie died, Lori faced harsh stereotypes due to the stigma surrounding substance use disorder. Despite this, she made a brave choice. Instead of concealing the truth about her son's death, she chose to be open about it. Out of this courage, Lori founded an organization called Saving Others for Archie, or SOFA for short. Mine is really very different because I, you know, I have a marketing and sales background. I mean, that's what I did. I decided that what I was good at is really events. And I wanted to have my events just be well attended and be fun, not be as sad necessarily. And people were afraid. The very, very beginning, especially at the beginning with Archie, so many parents were afraid. We did something called Stairway to Heroin because heroin was the big thing back then. And we had presentations at our high school and parents were afraid to come even with their kids because if they came with their kids, it might show that something was wrong with their kids. Like, you know what I mean? Like, it was just the stigma of even being in the theater or coming to my event at all. I would say to people, well, why aren't you just coming to support me? Just to support, you know, our family or what we're doing. I don't care about the fun. Just show up. And people were so afraid to think that my family has a problem. We would be doing the homecoming parade. We'd be in the parade and handing out cards. And people would say, oh, we don't need that help at our house. We don't have a problem with that at our house. So the stigma was so huge. And I decided then our town in little Wisconsin and this nestled little lake country area is so, you know, prim and proper. I'm going to start saying words like heroin, overdose, fentanyl, and start making these people be uncomfortable because you know what? It is happening in small towns. It is not just in the big cities. Yeah. And it doesn't matter what zip code you have. It doesn't matter what kind of income you have. Or, you know, it, it hits anybody. And it doesn't matter how we raise our children. You know, this is happening to, and it can happen anywhere. And now people are really seeing that, I think, more so. But back then with me, talk about being prejudiced against. It was bad. Oh, I bet. I bet you had people say horrible things to you, too. Oh, I had police officers. Police officers said... Poor parenting. Poor parenting is really what we're seeing with this. And I had one girlfriend just go up to this family and said, are you kidding me? Do you know that Archie was an altar server till age eight? Do you have any idea what the bedirth? I mean, she just ripped into this man and was like, it doesn't matter because I know she's defending me, but there's other families that this officer is going to do that's going to, you know what I mean? I care about I me. do. It is horrible. And I think people like to think they're protected, right? Like, oh, that's not going to happen in my family. I've done everything right. And there's got to be something they're not, they've done wrong. That's why this happened. And quite frankly, anyone can find themselves addicted to something, no matter what their educational level or their income level or their religion or what it is. Absolutely. 
It's just like saying, oh, my marriage is perfect. Well, that's not true. You can't say that. If anybody's honest, you always say, hey, it takes a lot of work. That's being honest. And I did the best I could with my children. And you know what? They were good people. They were good people. And I know that Archie is proud of the work that Augie and I have done in his name. I mean, Augie went to college at UW-Eau Claire in Wisconsin. And he took these, we have these bracelets of hope that say his name and it says awareness on them. And in his dorm, he handed them out. I mean, he was not afraid to talk about it. How old was Augie when Archie died? He was a junior in high school. And that's how old Adam, my youngest son, Emily's brother, was. And he's the very same way. He's very proud of the charity and the work that we're doing. First, he was horrified that his sister would die in this way. But I do think that the advocacy work has helped him understand so much more and also be proud of the work that we're doing to try to save other lives. Exactly. That's what I mean. To me, it makes them feel that we don't have to be ashamed and we can say their name and talk about it. There's so many families that hush, hush, and never want to say their name. I'm like, say Archie's name. Makes me happy to talk about him. I think it's healthy for our kids to talk about him. I think it's very sad. And I feel sometimes, I don't know if you feel like this, Angela, but there's some parents that look at me and say, I love what you do, Lori, but I can't do that. And I said, that's okay. That's okay if you can, but you can help me. You can come to events and you can, you know, chip in when you can because they want to. They just physically or mentally feel like they can't. Well, and grief does impact everyone differently, right? So some people would have a very tough time living in this space that you and I live in where we're talking about this issue all the time. We're talking about our children quite frequently. I think that can be very difficult for people. It's hard to live there all the time. Well, my husband couldn't. My husband said to Augie and I, when we started this, I can't. I can't be part of it. I'll support the two of you. But he's very quiet, very, very different from how Augie and I. But he did come up with the biggest thing for SOFA, which was Fentanyl America's new F word. And he came up with that slogan at one of our meetings. And that was, we had a billboard in Times Square last year. And I was really proud of Andy for coming up with that. We trademarked it. That is really catchy. I saw that on your website that the new F word is fentanyl, right? And that catches people's attention and at least makes people stop and think. As Lori watched her family members battle grief in their own way, she felt compelled to help others who have lost a loved one. She reached out to a friend who runs an organization called Healing Hearts, known for helping people in challenging situations, including grieving families affected by tragic events, such as the Wisconsin holiday parade that turned deadly. You may remember the heart-wrenching news reports. According to officials, at least five people were killed and more than 40 others injured when a red SUV plowed into Waukesha, Wisconsin's Christmas parade. As you can imagine, when there are massive casualties, the organization needs lots of volunteers who can help grieving families. Lori decided to take part in training through the group to become a bereavement companion. In the training, I learned the most thing is we need to listen. You know, when somebody has lost somebody, the best thing to do is truly be quiet 
and be a, a great listener because no one's here to have us tell them their story. They've lost a loved one. And we as humans, the first thing we want to do when we talk is tell our response, right? That's how we're trained. So I had to retrain my brain to just sit there and try to bite my tongue and not respond to this person, not give them advice. Once, you know, it was quiet for a while, I could tell them how I dealt with my grief, but I couldn't give them advice. It's very different. You can tell them how you did things. So it was, it was really helpful and lighting a candle. Anytime I talk about Archie or anytime I grieve, I like to light a candle. I like to light incense or have a good smell, you know, something positive, good music, those kinds of things. I don't feel bad about crying at all. I think crying is a beautiful thing. The other thing is, is giving a friend gave me a beautiful pillow of the silhouette of Archie and then this beautiful prayer kind of poem on the bottom. And every night, it's in, I have a prayer room, I can hug them. And I said, what a cool gift that somebody gave me. So those are just some things that for me work. But when I work now with my bereavement, it's listening. And I think we are always so worried about saying the right thing. What are we going to say? Are we going to say the right thing? And I think you're right. We need to think less about what we're going to say and just listening to someone when they're, especially in that, those early stages of grief. Have you lost a loved one to overdose or fentanyl poisoning? I'd like to invite you to share their story on our new Emily's Hope Memorial website called More Than Just a Number. They were our children, siblings, cousins, husbands, wives, aunts, uncles, and friends. So much more than just a number. You can submit a memorial today on morethanjustanumber.org. You're so right. And ask them questions about their loved one. What did you love about, you know, you don't know, talk about their relationship. What kind of activities was, you know, it makes people so happy to talk about the joy and the memories and those asking questions. I didn't realize that was something in my training. It's asking questions. That's a great thing to do because, again, there's nothing wrong with crying. Crying's a beautiful thing. You know, we grieve because we love so much. The work I mean, is hiding our grief. Yeah. Burying it or using substances to cover it up or something like that. That A lot of people fall into that trap. But you, so you mentioned you're almost a decade now since you lost your oldest son. And has grief changed for you over the years? You know, it's a journey for sure. There's been so many moments, even that first year, I'm a very faithful person. I don't know if I didn't have my faith. I don't know how I'd get through life. I'm not one of these people that believe time heals because it's a journey. And I have to say, now when I look nine years, I can't believe it that I've lived, that I have survived the nine years without a hate. Lori shares that, and another heartbreaking aspect of her grief is seeing her son's friends go through life's significant moments, getting married, having children. While she's excited for them, it's a mix of emotions because it's also a reminder of the experiences her son will never have. 
getting to that stage where, where all of his friends are getting married and they're having kids. You know, my best friends, we all were pregnant together. And I'm, I'm going through those stages where I'm just, you know, I'm feeling such an emptiness because he's my yes. first, you know, and nothing. And Augie lives in Kansas City and I'm alone. You know, I am alone. I get that when, and I'm, I know some of my daughter's friends, they're still involved with the charity, but I see them, you know, growing up, getting careers, getting married, having kids. And you just know that you'll, you won't have that with your oldest child. Right. You can't help but have that ping of you just would like, what would they look like? Or what did they, or just those things that you're not going to have those dances at the wedding, all those things. You with the dress, the wedding, you know, with the girl, the wedding. I mean, we all have our things that, you know, it's just not going to happen. And I never thought my life would be like this, but I do think that there's a purpose and we're making a difference. I think that there's been so many people I know I've helped and made a difference. I just feel that as a nation, I feel sad because I feel like we could be doing so much better. And I think I'm so proud of like you and other organizations that I, I'm just in awe of what people are doing. Right, right. And you're right. I think that we're just getting to the point where there's just so many of us now. When it happened to you nearly a decade ago, there wasn't anybody else out there. And now, I mean, I talk to parents all the time and you hate to see it happening again and again, but we have to be getting to a point where we're at a tipping point where how can we allow this to continue to our children? Yeah. And right. I felt awful because look at you four years later, I felt like I was making a difference. I felt like I was making a voice, but it makes me angry when I look that this year will mark in May, it will mark 10 years and it's worse. Our government is not helping. And it makes me so angry because we're losing a generation you know, 300 and some people. And it's like, no one cares. I don't understand why it's not an emergency. I hear you. And I think about what you said, like Archie died four years before Emily and you're out there already doing advocacy work, trying to stop it from happening to other people, but it continues to mm -hmm. happen and it continues to get worse. And I feel like there are so many of us now who've started nonprofits. You started a nonprofit in Archie's name. I started a nonprofit. I speak to so many parents, you know, who are doing all this advocacy work, but yet we're up to 305 overdose deaths per day. And about 80% of those are fentanyl poisoning. So what do you think the answer is? I mean, we both attended that White House meeting on International Overdose Awareness Day. In case you missed the previous episode of Grieving Out Loud, where I talked about International Overdose Awareness Day, Lori and I both received special invitations to the White House to meet with some of America's top government officials working to end the historic drug crisis. The visit included discussions with prominent figures, such as our nation's drug czar, the CDC director, and second gentleman, Douglas Emhoff, Vice President Kamala Harris's husband. We also had the opportunity to briefly connect with other parents who've lost children to the fentanyl epidemic. And that was your third trip to the White House? Yes. For the same event? No, for similar events. They call them something different, but very, very similar. They did this differently. I was disappointed because last time at least we were in a circle, so we got to meet everybody. This time we didn't get that opportunity. 
But I thought the time spent, it should have been a, a two-day conference and they should have had us come in the next day and all of us should have had time to move from table to table and been able to meet each other and then come up with solutions to together because I think we could have. Right. And I would have loved to have shared, we do a elementary school prevention education curriculum, which is really groundbreaking. It is. I haven't heard of elementary. Right. Yeah. So I think we believe that we need to get to kids at a younger age. And I think if I would have had the opportunity to share more of that, we could even see it spread further. And there may be something somebody else is doing, right, that we could be implementing. Exactly. And so you're right. And it's going to take all of us not working in competition with one another because it's not about that. It's about us joining hands. Yeah. It's empowering each other. I mean, that's what I think it is. Thank you for everything that you're doing. Is there anything that you want to leave our listeners with? More than anything, it's hope and it's the grieving. The grieving process is to grieve, find a good group. Absolutely, it is a journey. And remember, your journey is your own. It's your own time, your own pace. Some days are good. Some days are bad. But give yourself the space. And if you're really missing your loved one, you know, tell somebody or do what I do. Go to the grave. Do what you need to do to feel closer, but keep moving forward. And remember, we're in this together. And um, we were blessed by these beautiful children or loved ones that we lost. And, and we're not going to stop fighting. Yeah. Well, that's a great note to end the podcast on. Thank you so much, Lori. I really appreciate you Thank joining you. me today. Great, great meeting you. And I want to thank you for listening to this episode of Grieving Out Loud. Be sure to join us again next week for an emotional and riveting interview. We sit down with a natural medicine doctor who faced a nightmare scenario when her daughter, battling severe health problems, was prescribed opioids. After she became addicted and her prescriptions ran out, Sandra Martinez's daughter sought out drugs on the street. Know that there was human trafficking involved because we have some human trafficking issues in our city. I know that she was drug mulled. I know there were gangs that they abuse these girls that are out on the street seeking drugs because of their addiction. It's a journey of heartbreak, resilience, and the relentless pursuit of hope. Join us for this emotional and candid conversation on one of the biggest crises facing our nation. Thanks again for spending time with us. Until we meet again, wishing you faith, hope, and courage. This podcast is produced by Casey Wunnenberg King and Anna Fye.